Hi, and welcome to Ludo Narrative Dissidents. This is Call of Cthulhu 7th Edition, a classic of tabletop role-playing games. Uh, this is the newest edition published in 2015, uh, and this is something uh, I imagine all three of us, uh, me, uh, uh, Greg, and James, have all played at least once in our lives. Uh, so it will be interesting to talk about what this game is, what it does, and how it does it. It is the most popular uh, horror role-playing game, certainly the most popular Cthulhu role-playing game. Hopefully uh, you all at least have a little background on knowing what Cthulhu is and what we mean by that. I mean, I would be hard-pressed to think of one more popular, more internationally renowned, more fundamental to horror gaming. I mean, it got there first and has never left. Yes, it's not just the template for all horror games. It's pretty much the template for all games that aren't fantasy RPGs um, Mm. and possibly science fiction RPGs. It's a monument in the field. It's absolutely massive. Uh, and the other thing that's, that's worth saying is the reason that everyone knows about Cthulhu is largely Call of Cthulhu. Because before it came out, H.P. Lovecraft's work was not particularly noted. It was, you know, just there with other pulp writers, occasionally anthologized, but was not significant. And Call of Cthulhu, in the same way that the West End Star Wars role-playing game is one of the things that kept the torch alive for the Star Wars universe, and in fact created much of the expanded universe, Footnote to a footnote here, in the same way that the Willow TV series has taken most of its lore from the Willow RPG source book, now back up in an Inception kind of way out of those footnotes. Um, <laughs> Call of Cthulhu is is so huge. I mean, certainly the first twentieth game set in the twentieth century that had any impact at all, and and remains that way. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to underestimate its significance on on the field. Yeah. And so, yes, let me preface everything I'm about to say with my love and respect for this game (laughs) that has given me so much. And yet at the same time, it does use the future conditional, which every time that popped up, it was like a miniature sand check going off like fireworks in my brain. But I'll say no more about it. I'll say no more about it, except that I believed in Chaosium and they should have done better. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> one day, Greg, one day. Yeah, it screws my toll on balance as well, but I can't be bothered to go there. Yeah. Someday uh, my prince will come. <laughs> yes, Call of Cthulhu I... uh, was first published in 1981. Uh, wow. The newest edition uh, was published. Old? All right, yeah. listeners, yeah. take a moment. Think back to, you know, think back through the hairspray beyond the 1980s that you are presented in popular media, which is all leg warmers and primary colors and Kajagoogoo songs. And think back to the real 80s, which was, you know, fear that Ronald Reagan was seriously gonna launch a nuclear strike because he woke up one day convinced Jesus wanted him to. (laughs) Or for James, you know, think back to, you know. No, we were fucking terrified of Ronald Reagan as well. (laughs) And rightly so. But you you guys had Thatcher, which, wow, I mean. Yeah, we had had Thatcher into the 90s. (laughs) Don't forget. Just wow. So, I mean, the 80s, 
you know, so think about where you were in the 80s. I'm sure many of our listeners, it's like, I didn't have to go through the 80s. I only know them through Stranger Things. And it's like, you're actually kind of lucky. The 80s were littered with the trash of the 70s. And a lot of 70s stuff didn't look good when it was new and and only degraded. God, those, those fucking collars, those long dagger collars. People were still wearing those in 1981 when Call of Cthulhu came out. So much plaid and avocado and orange shag carpeting. Yes, I, we don't know if Sandy Peterson, the original creator, was ever wearing those shirts. Though the only the only shirt of his I remember is one from rather later, uh, from the nineties, from a British convention, where he had a black T-shirt with the Doom logo in enormous, <laughs> full color letters on the front and on the back in very small type. It just said, "Wrote it." <laughs> uh, because he did yeah. he yeah. did he was uh, he was on the doom original doom team changed the face of gaming twice mm-hmm. um yeah. the man yeah origin. and he was illustrated in the games uh, the games workshop edition did an edition of call of cthulhu that had the color plates in it and i just remember an absolutely po-faced ghastly image of sandy peterson as like the my go from uh oh what what's the the fun guy from yoga yeah well what's the story where you know the one is is oh. masquerading as a human the whisper in the darkness like, yep it's like sandy peterson is the whisperer in darkness peeling the peeling his gloves off to reveal the the grossness underneath it was <laughs> a fantastic illustration Genuinely creepy. Genuinely creepy. Genuinely so creepy. Call of Cthulhu is one of these few games that has lasted all this time, from 1981 to the newest edition, 7th edition, which is the one we're focusing on today, uh, which was published in 2015 uh, and has been the uh, standard. And so also marks a uh, departure in a lot of game mechanics from earlier editions. A lot of Call of Cthulhu changes from the 1st through 6th edition were rather incremental. For me, it's really interesting. You're right, James, in talking about how this has, like, created a new mode of tabletop role-playing games. Because, you know, before this, there was the paradigm of D&D, you know. Fantasy adventurers going out on quests uh, and obviously inspired and modeled after uh, fantastic literature of all kinds of sources. I mean, that that's an endless debate, but, like, fantasy as a genre. Um, and you know, Call of Cthulhu came along and it was modeled after horror literature. And in horror literature, you don't go out and fight the monsters. You investigate mints, uh, you investigate mysteries caused by monsters or cultists or seri- something supernatural or occult. And, uh, so this created an entirely different paradigm. You investigate things, uh, and solve mysteries rather than fight monsters and clear out dungeons. Uh, now there's, both games have featured scenarios that do both things. They're investigative D and D scenarios. There's dungeon crawling and call of Cthulhu, but it's uh, also set. Yeah. As you said, in the 20th century, particularly the 1920s and thirties in all editions of call of Cthulhu, the default assumption is you are someone living in the 1920s who is by hook or by crook, De- uh, deciding to investigate a mystery that will involve a supernatural element or elements. Yes. And it never quite goes into why. 
Um, because uh, in the same way that D&D never quite goes into why are you going out down dungeons and killing monsters? Because it's fun. Um, yeah, it's it's very kind of, it's open in a way that a lot of horror games aren't. Sorry, Greg, you go ahead. Um, what I was going to say is, you know, how much, de- you know, decide is a strong word because this is this is something I've dealt with writing horror games is that, you know, you have to accept that your character ha- is destined to undergo this horror horrible thing that you would probably rather you know if it was going to happen to you you would absolutely want to avoid it but it's going to happen to your character and you have to buy into that because otherwise there's no game and it's it's something you have to do when you're playing horror games is you have to accept that okay my character is going to have not just one bad thing happened to them, but a series, and some of which are going to be unavoidable. And you have to embrace that suck if you are going to get anything out of horror gaming. And mm-hmm. it's okay to not like horror gaming, but if you don't like horror gaming, maybe try to not take your dislike of horror gaming out on horror gaming. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, Call of Cthulhu, as it stands, does have this sort of generalist toolkit approach of saying, here's how you can make a person who lives in the 1920s, uh, and here's a tool, here's all these monsters and mechanics to create a mystery for this person. Now, how that person slots into that mystery is up to you, whereas mm-hmm. games like Delta Green have a pre... Like, that was Delta Green's contribution in the 90s, was like, here's a framing mechanism to explain why your FBI agent is looking into the UFO sightings. Um, and Right. I mean, yeah. that... It Delta Green started as we need a funnel to put fresh PCs into these situations because I I think what happened was that there was a lot of them finding that, oh, well, you know, this party that's a bootlegger and a French can-can dancer and a New England professor and a Trobrian Island fisherman – it just doesn't seem to have thematic coherence, and it's mm-hmm. not contributing to a general feeling of nihilistic horror, which is what the pagan dudes wanted out of Call of Cthulhu. So they're like, let's come up with a setting where everyone is from the same tone. You know, everyone's from the same tonal planet. Yeah. And of course, they came yeah. up with burnt out cops and soldiers <laughs> yeah there is a there's a brilliant little bit in the seventh edition which kind of explains how you can do this i can take all these people from disparate backgrounds and you know everyone generates their character and they're wildly different and the gm just says okay you're all passengers on a plane and you don't know each other brilliant but you can't <laughs> do that for every scenario Mm-mm. um you can't yes, do I that was... to replace people who died playing the characters who died playing Masks of Yarlathotep. Mm-hmm. No, that that does not work. And I was expecting Seventh Edition to do something to address this. It's you know it, we are forty years on from uh, from nineteen eighty two. Uh, it times have changed. People do look for something different, and it barely address. I mean, it does address it, but it doesn't address it within the structure of the rules within character yep. generation. It just kind of says find ways for your characters for your player characters to come together 
But that, as you just if briefly, you mentioned deaths in Nile Athotep, and one of the other things Call of Cthulhu brought to the table was an expectation that you're probably going to fail and you may well die. People <laughs> say Paranoia. People say Paranoia 1984 was the first game. To, uh, Paranoia is kind of set in Orville's 1984, but it came out in 1984. Um, was the first game to make you know death in in games not only acceptable but part of the of the process? But no, Cthulhu was there three years previously. There is a general expectation that if you don't die, you're going to end up at the very least considerably less compostmentous than you were before. Yeah, um, and and that was a huge jump forward. The whole idea that characters were not open ended. I will expand on that. In that. Cthulhu, the the expectation of Call of Cthulhu is you start off with this shiny, new in wrapper character who is going to go through situations, and it's sort of, I, I see it in my mind as a sort of Bermuda Triangle of Doom, because what you, you could just die. You could walk into that Deep One's claws and get decapitated, and that's, you know, one possibility. You will be physically unable to proceed. There's also a sanity mechanic tracking how well you emotionally and intellectually deal with the awfulness that you are experiencing, much of which is paranormal in nature and just inimical to human processing. Mm -hmm. So the other fate in store is you go mad, you lose it. Mm -hmm. You can't and the third possibility, which I don't think actually comes up that much, is that, you know, oh, no, the plot takes you out. You know, you shot a dude in the face because he was a cultist and the judge does not take, but sir, but your honor, he was a cultist into account when adjusting sentencing guidelines. You mm-hmm. just get locked up forever because your Trobriand Islander character didn't have any points put in getting away with murder body disposal skills. <laughs> so yeah. there are your character, the, the hope call of Cthulhu holds out this, this flickering illusory hope that my character can become stronger and stronger, which is the inevitable expectation of most game characters. You know, I'm going to spend my XP. I'm going to get better and I will, will continue to, widen my margins of victory whereas in call of cthulhu it's like sure you could learn a spell that'll let you do all this cool stuff it might kill you it might drive you insane it might put you in jail but maybe it won't do any of that maybe you'll just be the cool sorcerer who gets away with it and so you push your luck and push your luck until eventually one of you know, one head of the Cerberus gets you. And then you're like, oh, oh, I was so close to having a functional character. Well, maybe this Parisian dancer will will do it. That's that's certainly true. Um, I think one of the things that Call of Cthulhu does um, as a, well, Chaosium, the publisher does as a business, is instead of putting in a, here's how to do your campaign setting, here's how to focus your games, in the main book, they have published a game line uh, with, uh, of course, a lot of campaigns. Of course, they've re, uh, revamped. There's a new edition of Mask of Night or Lothotep. Uh, there's, you know, Call of Cthulhu Berlin, uh, Beyond the Mount- Mountains of Madness, a new campaign called The Children of Fear. And basically, they say, here's how to run a game, but here's what the game should be about. 
Um, and the, the, the scenarios and campaigns of Call of Cthulhu have certainly been one of the strong points of the game since the beginning, uh, I mm. think, is because generating complex mysteries of, you know, Mask of Night or those type is perhaps the best single tabletop role-playing game campaign ever published. Certainly one of the most influential um, because of its just how many people saw it and played best it. Best is a word so broad <laughs> that it's almost meaningless, but it's influential, I'll give you. Um, I've never played in it, so I don't, I don't know how good it is. Um, I've run it twice. Uh, okay. and Twice. Uh, yeah. You glutton for punishment. I The second time I ran it, I actually used the Trail of Cthulhu rules with a lot of pulp rules. Um, and speaking of pulp, they do have a supplement called Pulp Cthulhu to add uh, to make your game a pulp game, which characters are more durable, uh, they lose less sand, and they can fight back a lot better. Uh, so you mm-hmm. can more two-fisted action, mowing down hordes of cultists with Tommy guns. Yes, so on and so forth. This is an issue that I will dig into when we get into how people play it. Yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, no, Call of Cthulhu is is a fascinating game. One thing that always struck me was that uh, reading about its early history um, is a lot of people who are really into Call of Cthulhu weren't even really fans of Lovecraft or horror per se, they were really interested in history and the 1920s in particular. They wanted to be someone in the 1920s. Um, And uh, I think there is still this divide because Call of Cthulhu (laughs) is primarily a historical game, like a game set in historical periods. Uh, Not just the 1920s now. Like I said, there's Berlin, uh, which is set in, well, it's set in the 30s, I think, you know, like the Roaring, uh, the Weimar Republic uh, age. Oh, my God. God. Yeah. Oh no, it says 1920. So yeah, but yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Ooh. That's mu- that's much better. Yeah. Uh so yeah, the 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 yeah, the the Weimar Republic period, not not not, not 10 years later. I believe um, it's but, pronounced Weimar. Weimar, yeah, sorry. Uh the but there's a yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people have written like historical settings for it and lately like setting in different periods of history. Um and that's sort of the appeal. But there is like it's really set in the nineteen twenties as a it's a very specific period of history that it's really interested in. The the Lovecraftian mythos era, um, because that's when Lovecraft wrote. And so uh, oh no, we're beginning to see other things too, like Regency Cthulhu, uh yeah. as a supplement. But yeah. Or um, Cthulhu Invictus. That one was supposed to be pretty good. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah, I ran a couple games that set in that. Yeah, that that was fun to set in the Roman era. But um yeah, I think so that's sort of the broad perspective. You play someone in a in a horror story instead of a fantasy story and you are investigating what goes bump in the night and uh we'll and right, let the, me Yeah. Let me throw a thing out here that clearly 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 inspired by Lovecraft and adores Lovecraft. But wouldn't you say that Call of Cthulhu, the game, quote-unquote, emulates Lovecraft in the same way that D&D emulates Tolkien? Which Mm -hmm. is, okay, yeah, you can see where this tree grew from that seed. But I think that Call of Cthulhu, the game, is its own genre, separate from Lovecraft. I mean, intertwined. Mm Mm-hmm. It's it's a lot closer to the source material than D&D is to really any fantasy that had come previously. Nobody is going out hunting Darkspawn of Shubnigarath for XB and gold. Yeah. Cheerfully granted. But 
at the same time, the, nothing in Lovecraft except maybe there's like maybe two characters in the whole Lovecraft oeuvre I can think of who had more than one adventure. Yes. Um, there, there, I mean, there are stories of like, I know when I first got my, my hands on a copy of Call of Cthulhu and read through it, I was very interested, not only like reading the monsters and then like every monster had a little description, like a paragraph from, from the story in which the monster comes from. So I, I spent a lot of time actually tracking down those specific stories so I could understand what the monster <laughs> actually did. Uh, but I also, that's how they rem- get you, Ross. That's, that's how they got me. Uh, and then I also remember reading up all about all these cool mythos spells. Oh, I can cast Flesh Ward and Shriveling. And, like, I, if I get my hands on a Necronomicon, my character will be powerful and cool. And, like, totally, like, you know, I just wanted the idea of playing as someone with a high mythos skill and a lot of spell points so I could blast people uh, with magic. And I knew that would be really hard and my character would probably die very soon. But, like, it was just so cool. I wanted to be that that, that person who could do that. Which, okay, this raises the question, could Call of Cthulhu the game have succeeded without Dungeons and Dragons before it? Re- you know, because what you describe is like a D&D magic user on mythos steroids. Mm-hmm. It's like, what if Cloud Kill was somehow much worse? <laughs> And, you know, if you hadn't played D&D, would that be an appealing idea to you? When I first got it, it was a long time before I actually got to play it, because uh, finding people to play it, it was a yeah. challenge. Uh, uh, so, especially when D&D was around. D&D was something people got and uh, were more interested in. But um, I think... What if instead of being a cool elf with a longbow, you were a wheezing, neurasthenic, New England academic who faints from terror when he sees a rapey fish man it it must it must be said that the character that they um that generate within the rulebook of 7th edition and uses in examples of play thereafter Harvey Walters a 42 year old journalist who um i think is um yes described as handsome well dressed and a little overweight not a description you'll get of many D&D characters i think well mm-hmm. and okay the to take the devil's advocate role in a non-terrible way for once, the argument you can make is that, all right, compared to the scale of a mythos entity, Harvey Walters, the Troprient Islander, and the Parisian Dancer are just as well-equipped to deal with that as Miyamoto Musashi or... A Navy steel seal on steroids, or Albert Einstein's genius brain. You know the difference between the world's strongest man and some fat schlub like Harvey Walters is, in mythos terms, a rounding error. So yeah, mm-hmm. you know your odds of surviving are largely the same whether you're hyper-competent or just some ding-dong who fell into the mythos. Yeah. Um, Which, can I just... It's like, I don't know if this is digression or a fork, Um, which makes me wonder why the game has 30 pages of combat system in it. Because, I mean, my defining Uh... memory of Call of Cthulhu was in the first game I ever played... um, I had a Tommy gun and I was really excited and something smashed through a window and it was big and it had wings and no face. And I emptied the Tommy gun at it and it roared and took my head off. 
And it was like, oh, okay, we're not in a dungeon anymore. <laughs> this is, you know, yeah, it's, you don't need 30 pages of that. The original edition of Call of Cthulhu was powered by, as this edition largely is, was powered by the basic role play system, which we talked about last time regarding the laundry files. It's, it's very much the same percentile based system that was developed originally for RuneQuest. Right. It puts and a fair it's, it puts a fair it's a robust, company. strong, yeah. simulationist, trad game yeah i it, mean it, it's really it's served its time it's done 40 years and people criticize seventh edition for moving away from sixth edition and stuff like that but you compare it to the difference between editions of D, and it's like it's like tiny tiny little additions and and tweaks and and mm-hmm. you know points scales are, are enlarged or, or something like that my point was basic role play in the original call of cthulhu first edition box set the entire thing was 16 pages, and that was character generation and combat and everything else. And now this rule book, which is a chunk, it's what, 450 pages? Um, a substantial tome, 30 pages of, of combat, mm. when, for me, the essence of, of Call of Cthulhu is do not get into combat. <laughs> if, you, if you're in combat, you are in the wrong place and you are playing it wrong. The yeah. only game where the most experienced character has the highest movement movement rate and the <laughs> lowest encumbrance to steal a gag from I think Murphy's rules. <laughs> um, um oh, are 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 we on to how does it do that? Because yeah. you are suggesting that it could be a lot simpler. But I mean, people are used to it and boy, if you if you think the rules are maybe a little clunky and encrusted with needless knobs, bells, and whistles, consider that, you know, someone who has been running any game for 25 or 30 years can probably make that kitten purr no matter how many barnacles are clinging to the hull. Probably the really experienced Call of Cthulhu players use a fraction of those rules, but they still like having them there as a – it's almost like, you know, I like having them there so I can say no to them so that mm-hmm. I can just use the stuff I like. But probably the rules that people like vary from GM to GM. This is something I've I've suggested with, you know, Rain – my has has hit drive through RPG just today. <laughs> Huzzah! Whoa. Sorry for the long delay, everyone. But it's got a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of rules, and you would be absolutely irrational to try and use all of them. But mm-hmm. you can pick and choose off that menu and get a very specifically tailored system to your tastes. And I think there's a little of that going on with everything they offer you in this edition of Call of Cthulhu. And a lot of the rules are explicitly labeled as, okay, you know, this is an alternate rule. This is something to do if you don't want to be doing character generation every five... If you're a baby who doesn't want to be doing character generation again every five sessions. Yeah. 
no, for sure. I think um, Call of Cthulhu, in particularly this edition, um, it's a legacy game, right? Like a D and D, and so there are certain uh, tropes that have become intrinsic to Call of Cthulhu itself. To be, you know, what in, in order to be Call of Cthulhu, the RPG, it has to have these mechanics. Uh, the sand roll. You're referring yeah. to the sand roll. Well, a lot of things. Um, for example, like uh, 7th edition is actually uh, interesting to talk about because it's a departure from all previous editions in a lot of ways. Um, so, and, you know, talking about legacy, like uh, the original Call of Cthulhu is still heavily influenced by D&D because while it uses percentile systems for skills, you still have like 3D6 for attributes. Yeah. Uh, you have strength, you have con, you have intelligence. And that's still sort of left over to a degree because, like, what do you do in 7th edition is everything's been moved to percentiles, but to generate, like, your character's strength, you roll 3d6 and then times it by 5, and that's your strength in, as a percentile, uh, which is... I mean, it yeah. works okay. No, because, like, in previous editions, it was still, it would often be like, oh, you need to lift a boulder, make a strength times 5 check. So now mm-hmm. it just does the math. Uh, and then uh, what you also do is also divide it by half. And then I think by like a fourth. Yeah, uh, yeah that yeah. was that seemed fiddly to me. Yeah, that's the same mechanics. Like that's that as it has been in previous editions. It's just now you just do the math during character generation, and the numbers stay on your sheet, so you always see it's the just nu- cleanly yeah. reframed. Yeah. Yes. Um, and some people are really mad about it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, what I will say. Uh, and you, you brought this up. How does it do what it does? I would say yep. the special sauce in Call of Cthulhu is and always has been the sand roll. And this was the introduction of the sand roll. James, as our resident historian, <laughs> stop me if I misspeak, but this is the introduction of mechanics to measure an in the interior state of the character, the emotional yes. and intellectual equilibrium. As far as I'm aware, yes. What sand does for you, and this is this is elegant, this is the apex of elegance in design, is that you have this percentile stat that's sand, and you roll it, and if you're above your if you're at your sand or below, you're largely okay and have incorporated whatever awful thing you saw into your worldview. And if you exceed your sand, then you take damage to your sand rating. And there are some things that are so awful that they can only be incompletely incorporated. So it's like, oh, well, roll your sand to see if you lose just a little sand or a whole lot of sand. And what this does is it's a ratchet that only goes one way, and that way is bad for your character. You lose sand, so you have less sand, so you're less able to incorporate bad data, so you're likely to lose more sand after that, and it is a death spiral that is that fits the idea of a horror game like a spiral. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It is a beautiful piece of mechanical design. It, it really is. I mean, putting aside any objections that one might have about the simplification of mental illness and stuff like that, this is pulp mental illness. This is horror mental illness. It's not trying to be realistic. It's not trying to model any condition that anyone actually has. Mechanically, mm-hmm. oh, God, it's good. It's yeah, just it's lovely. 
it's it's meant to emulate horror fiction, like what yeah. happens when yeah. when the narrator sees the thing and runs off screaming into the night. The constantly like, yeah. escalating pressure matched to your constantly your your ablative ability to cope with it, and mm-hmm. so by the time you hit the biggest hit, you are at your lowest ebb, and that is that's horror in a teacup. The surprise to me is, you know, who thought anyone would want to do this? I'm like, Sandy Peterson, how did you guess that there were so many psychological masochists out there just waiting to say, deprotagonize me, mistress, I'm into it. And, and because, you know, what makes Call of Cthulhu fun is having the worst possible thing that could happen to you in most other games happen to your character, which is deprotagonization. I'm no longer in control of my character. I'm no longer making the decisions. I have no... The GM is saying, oh, yeah, you just run off. Uh, And then, you know, next time we see the guy, he's got no pants and he's running around Walmart screaming about ghosts and werewolves. And I'm like, yeah, carrying that a is, gun. Yeah, that is not the choice I would have made for my on behalf of my character, and yet I'm now dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, there's a couple things. Like everyone has watched horror movies. Like, oh, well, that's stupid. I wouldn't have done what that character did. I would have done this, and I would have killed the monster. <laughs> <laughs> I would simply have chosen not to lose my composure and fall into <laughs> gibbering catatonia. Don't go into the basement, like don't go, to the ba- <laughs> or if you go in the basement, don't go in the basement alone. Go into it with a buddy, and you're both armed with shotguns. See there, problem solved. Um, yes, and then you fire both barrels with the shotgun at the biaki, and it roars and takes your head off. Yeah, but sorry, uh, <laughs> a flashback. N- yeah, yeah, exactly. Still uh, processing this, huh, James? Uh, it's, no, uh, Greg actually was in a, a Call of Cthulhu game that I ran. That um, another friend of ours, um, we were playing at Gen Con, and. Um, one friend Wait, was which feeling. One is this? Oh, this is the well sacrifice. Um, oh yeah. yeah. So one of our friends was uh, uh, feeling well, and well, first off, there's Aaron. Aaron uh, went into this, uh, crawled into this tunnel of this this dried out well we we were excavating, and his character got killed. Then Tom, who was also playing, is like, "I'm not feeling well. I'm going to go." Uh, Aaron, you can have my character. And so Aaron's like, "You know what? This time I'm going to go in with a shotgun, and I'll be able to survive." And he goes in the exact same way and gets his head ripped off by the exact same monster in the same way. <laughs> so uh, it's 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 a very strong impulse. Think, well, I could do it better to backseat horror genre, basically. Hold uh, my beer. Backseat. I figured out what the problem was with the last attempt was insufficient shotgun. And then I think the other thing is, you know, like there's a lot of people who like playing games for the challenge, you know, uh, uh-huh. to outthink it, uh, to play on th- that a game is not satisfying unless it's on the hardest difficulty. Um, well, there, and, that was yeah. Masks of Nyarlathotep had little cards you could photocopy out of the back. And, you know, one was I survived Masks of Nyarlathotep and you could put that in your wallet and show it to people at conventions. And the other one was like, you know. I died play. My character died playing Mask of Yarlathotep, but so did this many others. Mm-hmm. And so there is this mordant impulse to be like, "Yeah, let's just see how bad it gets." Uh, I should mention that the uh, uh, seventh edition does add a couple other new mechanic systems. 
Uh, like the sandwich system is pretty seemed pretty similar to other editions. Mm-hmm. I didn't really notice, uh, but it does add like a couple of new twists that I, I liked. Um, we mentioned that you know all attributes are percentiles. One thing I did like though was that they had a push your luck mechanic. Uh, you could push your rolls. Um, so if you but fail, you can't a skill do check, it for sanity. Yeah, you can't do it for sanity. But like, let's say you fail a sneaking check, you're trying to sneak past uh, a guard. And uh, you fail. You could the GM can say, "Do you want to push your roll?" We could say, "If you if you, your failure just represents the fact that you didn't see an opening and you can't see a way past the." You could still run by, behind the guy and and hope he doesn't notice. Um, but if he failed this second attempt, then the consequences would be far worse than if yes. you had not. Uh, this is the horror just... version of taking twenty in D anD. D. That so would, that seemed yeah. good. The fact that they limited it just to skill checks is, again, we've got the Lancer divide between, okay, here's your skill shit, here's your combat shit, and they don't work the same because, surprise, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. And so this is an opportunity to, like, okay, you can push your luck with skills in a way that, you know, if you do it wrong, it's going to screw you. Yeah. But in combat, if you fail a combat roll, you're pre-screwed. So from a horror perspective, there is no point to including push your luck there because it's like, oh, what you're gonna you're gonna have a worse fa- you're gonna you're gonna be screwed worse. No, we're not we're not putting that in. <laughs> we're not. If I've got you screwed already, I'm not giving you the opportunity to get out of it in exchange for the possibility for just deeper screwing some other difficult some other changes to the the game mechanics uh, for this edition include also uh bonus and penalty dice uh which i feel is entirely yeah. because fifth head D did this with advantage and disadvantage dice and i feel like they're doing the same thing and i don't feel it's quite as elegant for a percentile system than for a d20 in call of cthulhu uh you in in seventh edition if you get a bonus die you roll um, you normally roll 2d10, right? Like one for the 10s, one for the 1s. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a bonus size, you would roll 3d10, and two of those are 10s. Your 10s you, place. Yeah. And you get to pick which is the better of the two. And penalty yeah. works the same way. You pick the worst of the two. Um, I would... Yeah. I, I've, run some, yeah. I've run some games of 7th edition. I, I think I forgot to use that system. Um, I would just accept a plus or minus to your... Like, oh, do it at, you know... Plus 20 to your skill, negative 20 to your skill, something like that. Bonus and penalty dice. And yeah, the changes, I don't know. Well, I have, uh, you know, uh, most of this stuff is is within sort of the horror genre where it's like, oh yeah, you can get a better result, but it's a thrilling gamble. You are going to, there's, it's got teeth to it. And that's... That's Call of Cthulhu. That that that's mm. within the keeping. That's keeping. Oh boy. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, I should mention we did get review copies of the Keeper's Guide and the uh, starter set uh, from Chaosium Publishing. So, uh, in the interest of self disclosure, in the uh, interest of self disclosure, yes. Yeah, um, it's a cool so book. Um, it, it is a cool a, book. Yeah, yeah. The art. A there's a lot of art. It's generally very good. There's not like a. Uh, a consistent theme or style to it, uh, which I mean, maybe okay. I would uh, say it's like sort of like an illustrated, not quite photorealistic uh, 
painterly style. They, 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 it's, it's like I can see that they're, they're trying to keep a consistent art style in house, uh, at least for the most part. Well, um, I think they reuse a lot of art mm-hmm. from previous editions too. Ah, I didn't pick up on that. I haven't actually seen Call of Cthulhu since what we used to call third edition, but I think was two point five, which was the the Games Workshop hardback no. in the mid eighties. Yeah. Ah, so I don't have much that, to compare it to. Though, with that creepy Sandy Peterson illustration that I can't seem to find online. Yeah, it is uh, the art style. Actually, I had a copy of sixth edition. I have a copy of sixth edition, autographed by Sandy Peterson, um, and uh, it is a very di- it's new art for almost entirely. I think they use a lot of the art from some of the side games. Like there are a lot of Cthulhu, or you they use some of the illustrators. There's a lot of Cthulhu board games and card games. You know, um, Arkham Horror and uh, numerous card games. Uh, and I think I see I recognize the same sort of art style on them. Um, yeah, so, it's worth but, making the point they did make half a million dollars on Kickstarter for this, which pays for a fair chunk of art, and it does look really yeah. good. Though, yeah, the reused stuff I think is mostly like tiny little spot art, like mm-hmm. an inch square, little you know, little decorations. Uh, I should mention, you know, you mentioned Kickstarter. Geez, we didn't even mention like the whole reason seventh seventh edition really exists. Uh, is because of the uh, Kickstarter uh, crisis uh, that Chaosium did uh, in in the uh, a few years ago. Well, more than a few years ago at this point, but um, they funded a Kickstarter for Horrors of the Orient Express, one of their big famous campaign box sets, and they raised a lot of money for it. But the expenditure of what it took to make a box set. Uh, and shipping basically nearly bankrupted the company. And ca- so Chaosium was about to uh, end as a company uh, until uh, new investors came in. Uh, some of the old guard, I believe Greg, Sta- uh, Greg Stafford was involved. Um, mm-hmm. And they rescued the company and uh, they decided to put out a new edition. So they sort of like relaunched the entire game line uh, instead of – because Chaosium kind of ran as sort of a zombie company for many years. Like it basically was unchanged from the nineties to the mid to late 2010s uh, or early 2010s. Um, and then after this relaunch uh, around the time of the seventh edition, uh, they've really focused the game line uh, and certainly seems to be doing a lot more successful, but like th- there was that, I mean, that's an entire thing separate to the game itself, but, like, it's very fascinating to read up on that. Like, Wikipedia wh- has it for anyone who wants to check it. Yeah. It, it, it really is. You, you know a game is good when reading about its extensive history as a business artifact is actually interesting. And not just the game itself, but the aura of business surrounding it. The... The Constellation of Anecdotes. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the only other new mechanic is luck, uh, which, again, is a percental thing. Um, and you there is an optional, and it's mostly used for, you know, wh- wh- things outside of the character's uh, control. But, like, uh, there is an optional rule to burn points of luck to uh, make a skill roll after you roll, uh, which we mentioned in our Metacurrency episode. Yeah. All right. Who felt that this was a move in a more pulp direction? Oh, definitely yes. It definitely yes. Is. So, pulp, pulp, all right. Playing. Yes, absolutely. My my thoughts on how people play it, you know, the third phase of our, our podcast structure here. Mm-hmm. How do people play Call of Cthulhu? I think there are two ways people play it. And I am reminded of 
someone that you know the the sitcom All in the Family with no. you know curmudgeonly Archie Bunker who would say just the most terrible things about various uh, uh, segments of the population and you know someone who worked on the show and had researched it he's like yeah there were two audiences for All in the Family. There was the left-wing audience that's like, oh, ho, ho, let's laugh at Archie Bunker, who is this Neanderthal who, you know, makes fun of the right by saying the loud, the quiet parts loud. But there was also this right-wing art, uh, All in the Family fans who were like, I just want to watch to see Archie Bunker articulate my actual views, you know? And they... They laugh at him, but they never actually refute it. He's, you know, he's just saying what we're all thinking. And the same thing happened with Stephen Colbert decades later. There were right-wing Colbert fans who were like, no, he's not making fun of us, you idiot. He really, he's just saying the stuff that we all know is true in a funny way with exaggeration to to get a grin out of those who are in on the joke. And many of these people were probably very saddened when he actually came out and was like, no, Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report is a character. Oh my God, this right-wing nonsense (laughs) is nonsense. It's bullshit. It's not. No, 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 no. Footnote, uh, for those in the UK, All in the Family was based on uh, Till, uh, Till Death Do Us Part, which was one of the Alf Garnet sitcoms very much the same central character experiencing really? yes it's, it's a british format originally um until death to us part ran for ages hmm. well, i was i was this many years old when i found this out but my point yes back back to your point sorry the 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 call of cthulhu relevance of archie bunker and stephen colbert is that I think there that people play Call of Cthulhu in one of two ways, and one is the unspeakable oath, po-faced, nihilistic horror, vastation approach, where it's like I want to have a catharsis where I contemplate the bleak, uncaring sublime. I want the full legati. And then there are also people who are like, okay, I'm going to play this in a motif horror way. And motif horror is a a phrase that I learned on Mastodon just recently for material where it's like, okay, it's got horror tropes and horror icons and emblems, and it is full of you know, spiders and rats and cobwebs and bats and darkness and blood and goth girls, but it's not forcing you to confront the intolerable. And, you know, an example would be Beetlejuice or Wednesday Adams, where it looks like horror, but it is not going to keep you up at night. Or a number of the Hammer Horror movies as well, which are all the tropes and none of the... Some, some of them have scares. Some of them are just going through the motions. We did touch on this actually briefly in the Delta Green episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like Call of Cthulhu is doing a good job of serving two audiences that want very different things. And that this version of Call of Cthulhu is moving towards the motif style. And for my, for, for the evidence for this assertion, 
I was looking at pushing, the pushing rules, and every skill on the probably, in my opinion, too long skill list has, okay, here's how you can push it. Here's what happens if you push it. Here's what happens if you push it while you're in a state of indefinite insanity. And a lot of those were kind of like, this is going to be a pratfall. The failed push in accounting is that you eat the – the example is you eat the records. And I'm like, really, man? Is this is this where we're going? It's – you know, that that that's clearly a gag. And if it hadn't been the skill that starts with AC, so it's not – if it hadn't been the first example you saw, it maybe wouldn't have bothered me so much. But more of the examples, there was a lot of that where it's like, oh, you know, this is not – Requiem for a dream insanity. This is, you know, ha ha sitcom insanity where he thinks he's Napoleon. At least they took nymphomania off the randomly rolled list of manias. Uh, but I mean, just to me, the whole idea of randomly rolling your mental problem, I can see where it is a. You know, it's a thing where, okay, you know, I'm going to do something. This is going to move me out of my comfort zone because it's going to force me to do something unexpected. But at the same time, it it has a fast food feel to me where I'm like, when I have a character lose it in a game, suffer intolerable psychological damage, I want that to be put on that character like a tailored suit. I want it to refer back to what's come before and I want it to make sense and I want it to be sad and horrifying and real and not a joke. And you can do that. One of the things in the sanity rules is, you know, okay, here is, you know, when when your character falls into this situation, the GM can go and tinker with elements of their backstory. And I'm like, okay, this, you know, this thousand-year-old vampire-like thing of, oh, no, you're not remembering that right anymore. I'm like, that's creepy. Mm. Or, you know, oh, yeah, your, you know, your, your relationship to your ex-wife has now become very strained. I'm like, okay, I'll buy that. But at the same time, in the hands of an immature GM, that's just going to be fodder for the most – puerile South Park style cheap shot humor yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. Again, this goes back to the toolkit nature of the game where it doesn't give you like, a, Hey, here's how to explain. Here's a framing device to get all your player characters together. It also doesn't like protect you from those kind of like, ha I'm going to poke fun at your character way, making you do something wacky and out of like break the mood of the game. Um, I will say this about skills. I will I am glad they kept operate heavy machinery in that ga- in the game list of skills. <laughs> I love that skill. In I don't know why it just appeals to me on a deep and primal level. Um, I have uh, attempted to run games specifically to get the player characters to use that skill, and they in the one I literally called the game operate heavy machinery, and then they refused to use heavy machinery to fight the monsters. I uh, um, see you just you <laughs> tipped your hand. They're like if. If Ross wants me to do it, I ain't doing it. I no, it's true. This game, it's it's true. Um, you, I won't be fooled again. It is a skill that makes the last scene of the Terminator a lot easier. 
See, exactly, exactly. I I, I gave them giant or monsters. The end, to, to, the yeah. end of Carrie uh, mm-hmm. in the the book, at least. I don't remember how the movie ended, but it's like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna hit this car with a giant heavy duty eighteen mm-hmm. uh, wheeler. Uh, I will like I did see uh, while researching for this episode. I did research, uh, look online to see what people were saying about the differences between the Call of Cthulhu's. Because as again, <laughs> this is the controversial edition. You know, this is the like calls of D&D. Cthulhu or Call of Cthulhu's. Uh, yeah, uh, this is the one that you know a lot of people don't like because it, it mm. requires some work to convert older scenarios, or they just change mm. things, or they have the luck mechanic. Uh, also, the tone of the game has changed slightly. Like, it's more inclusive, more diversive. There's like a pronoun thing on the character sheet. Like, it's oh my god! If you're bothered yeah. by having pronouns on the character sheet, go do some work on your shitty self. Figure it yeah. out. It's the 21st century. It, it's it is uh, a thing. It is there for a reason. But um, one person did note, like, just looked at the various editions, like how many skill points characters got. Uh, and there has been like characters have gotten more skill points over the editions, mm-hmm. like sixth and seventh edition. There are about 390 points, uh, but in first edition, you had like 160 points. Um, and so while the skill list has inflated, uh, so has the number of points. So there's just been generally like, again, going towards more the competent, but fragile character uh, model, which is not, which for an investigative scenario or campaign game, you know, model i think that works because if you can't find the clues you know you can't really you know even you try really to solve don't them. want your investigator to get killed by the first cultist you want to, them to get killed by the dark young in the giant gruesome climax mm-hmm. yeah that's just good care that's just good scenario <laughs> design right there it's true yeah i um like I have run this game, uh, there is actually uh, one of the scenario anthologies they put out, Nameless Horror, uh, has a scenario called The Space Between, which is set in modern day Hollywood. And that was actually very nihilistic uh, as, you know, they they find out there's a new age religion that the producer, um, that certain, you know, powerful people in Hollywood are using. Uh, and yeah, it turns out badly. Uh, they also have one that I ran set in the French Revolution, uh, which Ooh. was the Reign of Terror. Uh, sort of a prequel to uh, Horror on the Orient Express, one of the, the villains in that campaign. Uh, you can see their origin in, in this uh, particular scenario. So Outstanding. Um, yeah, so it's like I've had fun running it. Um, again, with my personal preference, I, I would go darker because the Delta Green rules, I think, are right. a little less well, forgiving. Well, and I mean, I think that yeah. might be why they've gone a, skewed a little mm-hmm. more pulpy and a little more towards the, okay, you know, if you want to blend horror and humor, that's legit. Mm-hmm. Because Delta Green has you know, set up camp at... We are the most po-faced, nihilist, bleak edition of this. And, you know, they built their little cabin there, digging a well, irrigating their crops. They're not going anywhere. They've they've staked out that, that end of the continuum. Mm-hmm. And what that does to Delta Green is you will never have a lighthearted, fun Delta Green game. Dennis would f- pay for an a- an airline ticket to come burn your house if you tried it, uh, and he doesn't. And he doesn't like leaving Canada. 
You can do a very funny Delta Green game. It is black comedy, but like um, one of my best times. But you couldn't write you. You could absolutely run and play one, but you couldn't write one. Uh, I know you could do like uh, think of like a Coen Brothers movies like Burn After Reading, but you know with uh, 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 monsters in it. Uh, I'm, black I'm comedy, telling I you, uh, I don't think I don't think Arc Dream would publish it because they have decided well, the, that yeah this is the this is our thing we do this is our tone our tone is going to be consistent. What people expect from us is this tone. I mean, yeah, if you true. went into McDonald's and ordered a hamburger and they said, you know, I know you wanted a hamburger, but try this mac and cheese with tuna. It's really good. You would not care if it was the best mac and cheese with tuna you'd ever eaten. You'd be like, no, give me my fucking McDonald's hamburger. I came here knowing what I want and expecting to get it. Well, I mean, there's a difference between running it and, like, getting it published, too. True, 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 true. Absolutely Um, true. And I think it's, like, the game I ran that was probably the funniest of Delta Green ended in a player crit failing uh, an attack roll with a flamethrower and then uh, an enemy critically succeeding on an attack roll on the same player. So uh, it ended rather explosively. Sure. Um, and uh, everyone had a great time, but like I think that's still yeah. very thematically appropriate to Delta Green. Um, yes, but it's uh, just I, like oh well, <laughs> chaotic and absurd. That's yeah. the human experience. Ta-da! Um, we call it the aristocrats. Uh, I would say one of the things that is thematically different from Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green is the reliance on tomes or grimoires, um, mm. and they've added new rules uh, in this. Uh, they have rules now have a. Mythos rating. So um, there's a reading time uh, for the grimoires, you know, and then you can learn spells. You take sanity damage, you gain a Cthulhu Mythos skill uh, ability, but then um, you gain, uh, you can go back and check the book, and the book has its own independent score. So, like, if you want to figure out a clue, you can go go back to Miskatonic University, read the Necro, skim the Necronomicon for references to you know the fun guy from Yogoth, and see. Oh well, they go up on. Oh, they go up here. This is how we can banish the monster, which I thought was a really interesting idea yeah, to bring I, the tomes into a campaign. You know, I sorry, thought James. it felt like D and D magic items to me. I thought okay. it, it was actually it stripped. James, don't. Don't say things you can't take back, James. I, I'm not going to take it back. I think it stripped a lot of the kind of the mystery and horror of these things. And I said, what do we need to solve this? We need a tome. Let's go on a quest for a tome. It's No, that's not what makes Call of Cthulhu special. Um, or at least not for me. Um, and, you know, we're talking about how people play this and why they play it. And I, say, I think Call of Cthulhu works best as a one scenario game. Generate your characters, play one scenario, mm. then say, okay, that's the end of those characters. They reach the end of their lives. And perhaps your future characters will pick up on work they did or the clues they left behind. But I don't. I think the idea of having ongoing characters in a D&D style, and it was D&D that pioneered that school of storytelling, essentially. An awful lot of franchise fiction evolved out of the D&D model of these heroes will never die. They'll just keep going. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think Fritz Labor was doing it with Fafford and the Grey Mouser. Yeah, but f- Howard was doing it with Conan before D and D ever came along. I mean, those existed, yeah. but the the heroes were changing their. their as uh, my distant memories of reading them in my teens, um, the heroes were changing, and there weren't that many of them. You know, it wasn't like well, book consider- after book after book after book after book every six months. 
I mean, this is this is the uh, I think it was Robin Laws who introduced me to the idea that, you know, an iconic hero is different from a literary hero because a literary hero, it's all about, oh, he grows and learns and becomes a better perfect person. And nobody wants that from an iconic hero like Batman, Sherlock Holmes or Tarzan. You know, nobody wants Sherlock Holmes to meditate on his interior state. They want him to go be the guy he's always been, do the things he's always done. Yeah. And, you know, and that's fine. And that especially for plot-oriented pulp novels as discrete from character-driven literary novels. Or I've and just I think thought this... comic books as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, if you look but, at the, yeah. like, again, the inspiration, like the most of the Cthulhu Mythos stories are short stories. They are not novels or a series of novels. You don't, See, it's uh, what the the guy from Mountains of Madness turns up again in Shadows Out of Time, and mm-hmm. Armitage is in like two stories. But yeah, these characters have a sell, uh, you know, a Best Buy date after a couple uh, after a couple adventures. They've just seen enough. They're like, I'm just ready to be done. Let the darkness take yeah. me. Yeah, but like, I think the thing is, campaigns are very satisfying with Cthulhu, having played. Uh, and, and played and run and several. Yeah. They separate from the the source material, and you know you can't you can't be chained to the source material. Yeah, but I mean, it's like, not without flaw, right? Um, but there are. Uh, I think we have a good model in terms of the fiction, uh, not necessarily the written fiction, but like think of like Prestige Television. Think of like like uh, True Detective season mm. one would be a campaign, and it would show. Yes the narrative arc of this of these characters as well as like uh, unraveling a mystery too complex to resolve in a single game session. Yeah, I mean you don't have you're not forced to pick between character and plot. Yeah. When done well, plot illuminates character the way nothing else can, but mm-hmm. you have to be ready to balance it. And also especially with uh, Call of Cthulhu having like run Mask of Nerlothotep twice and, and read a companion book to it and just read the book multiple times. Um, it offers so many options that really can't be as satisfying in, because there's so many setups and payoffs in it that, that become very satisfying where the players find a clue that is not resolved until like five sessions later in a different country. Um, and, uh, there's, there's, you know, and by the time they find, you know, the secret cultist base, uh, and they can finally put it in and get questions they've been asking since the beginning of the campaign answered, um, that that is a high point in gaming. Again, the game, at, the base game as written, doesn't really give you the support to do that. You have to kind of know how to scaffold on that, like how to create a framing yeah. device to get players into it, and then also to introduce new player characters. Uh, like the the thing I keep saying is like the first time I ran Massive Nightmare of the Death, the players started out with you know librarians and journalists, um, and by and and uh, you know a detective, but by the end it was like I, who, are, who okay who's your new character KGB KGB assassin who's your other one uh, the other KGB assassin who's a twin <laughs> to that one well what about your character I'm a gun runner for the KGB like okay I get it all right so. Um, Everyone was uh, kind of like learned from their experiences and made more and more optimized characters to deal with the bullshit in their campaign. What we need yeah. here is someone who could do horrendous violence and then go eat a meatball sandwich afterwards. 
I am curious. I would like to read the new campaign to see how they change it. Um, uh. yeah, it is a beast. Um, but yeah, campaigns can be very satisfying, but um, it's it's a it's a lot of work for the for a good. You pay gotta off. put the work in. You what you get out of it will be proportional to what you put into it. And 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 the framework for Call of Cthulhu is so versatile. Like there's one scenario mm-hmm. that I read that I I would love to run it or a version of it where the characters literally get put on trial for murder. Um, and they, uh, of course they're being framed by the bad guy, but like they have to prove that they're innocent. Um, and they have mechanics to, for the trial. They talk about the different phases of the trial and like how to do all this stuff. And like, it's like, oh wow. Yeah. We've never really explored a trial before. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, there, that's just one example, but, um, yeah, Call of Cthulhu is uh, a fascinating, um, but I think the current edition and all editions are just kind of like the games that have come from Call of Cthulhu are more appealing to me now because Call of Cthulhu is, and I think because it is Call of Cthulhu, is weighed down by its uh, legacy mechanics and mm. sort of, you know. Yet like, at the same time, it also has this amazing uh, inertia, this forward mm-hmm. movement. I mean, Chaosium could collapse tomorrow, God forbid, and people would still be playing Call of Cthulhu 10 years from now. It would just sure. be that the books you, you know, the main rule books would have a higher aftermarket value. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. heaven knows there's enough of, enough copies out there by now. Um, yeah. So, yeah. all right. Ha- have we moved on to, okay, we've talked about how people play it. You know, some people play it motif horror, haha. Some people play it bleak revelation of the uncaring universe. Oh no! And you know, to me, it's like okay. So the fourth phase of our our podcast structure is why do people play it that way? Which to me is like okay. Now I got to dig into the big question of what do I like about horror because. If you look at bleed theory, which we have discussed before, bleed theory is the idea that when something happens to a fictional character that causes an emotional reaction in that character, we get a sort of contact high or a shadow of that experience. So bleed theory would suggest that you don't want to play a horror game. You don't want to play a game when your character is like, oh my god, my life is revealed to be meaningless. I am a smudge on the microscope slide of the cosmos. I am nothing. No, you shouldn't want to have those feelings. And yet... The people playing the Nihilist game, they do. They they chase that Legati hit. Um, and to me, I'm like, yeah, why do I like these really, really bleak games and really bleak movies and really bleak stories? At the same time that and, – and let me be clear in my position that I also love motif horror – and I love stuff that's just playing around with the look and the aesthetic and where I am not going to get dragged through some horrific experience that ends with me questioning everything that it means to have a human soul. I like both. I I am perfectly capable of enjoying both. Um, but I think that, you know, the catharsis idea is real. Uh, it's you. You trick your your brain, and it's like, oh, hey, good news! Horror is fictional. This the 
Yeah, you've seen The Untamed. That's not really what we're like. You've seen, you know, 48 days. You've, you've seen uh, 14 days. 28 days later. 28. Yeah. You've seen 28 days later, and I that's have. not real. Mm-hmm. So you get this catharsis, your relief, where you're like, okay, there are things in my life that I would prefer be otherwise, but at least I'm not one of the characters who's addicted to the alien fucktopus in The Untamed. Uh, you know, I'm doing better than them. And it's a relief. And, you know, as I was reading and thinking about Call of Cthulhu and, uh, you know, writing up my notes for this, I'm like, if you are a person like me who is neurotic and has, you know, tendencies towards depression, where a lot of the bad things you think about really don't happen, I can see where horror is medicinal. Where it's like, yeah, you know, okay, yeah, you're thinking that this bad thing is going to happen. You're thinking that your back hurts because you got back cancer. You're thinking that you're never going to have another success. You're never going to write anything that anyone gives a damn about ever again because you're in a dry spell. But as you can tell from the fact that all these other horrible things are fiction, maybe all the Things your lying brain tells you about how miserable you are, maybe those are wrong too. Maybe those are also fictional. So maybe that's what catharsis is. I've been going on and on here. So yep. yeah, I will yeah. I will shut up and let you talk. I think I thought it was quality, but yeah, go, no, on, there's, go there's, on. There's good stuff in there. Um can I jump in, Ross? Well, actually I was I was gonna ask you a question, James. Sure. Um, because I think the other thing where we there is the obvious the horror aspect is obviously uh, the fundamental thing to call Cthulhu, but I think um, we kind of sort of uh, we mentioned, but we uh, haven't really focused on the the historical aspect, particularly the mm-hmm. 1920s aspect, and that's been fundamental to the game uh, ever since its beginning and to this day into this new edition. Um, what do you think caused like if it, if it was not uh, important to call Cthulhu, they would have changed it they would have you know said in the modern day they would have said it somewhere else but like people really like playing in the 1920s i and i can't like for me it's like okay it's interesting but like i don't get the appeal on a level you know it doesn't appeal to me in the same sense that horror appeals to me right those flappers are so hot (laughs) yeah um but yeah i i I mean i'd love to hear your thoughts on it uh and any anything else you had to say i mean it, it is a really interesting question because it very shortly after Call of Cthulhu came out, I think after Call of Cthulhu was successful, it was followed by a wave of other investigative games where you played a, a PI or a two-fisted pulpish hero. There was Justice Inc. from Hero Games. There was Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes by uh, Mike Stackpole from Flying Buffalo using the Tunnels and Trolls mechanic. There was one from FGU that I'm blanking on. Daredevils, I think. Um and all of them with a similar kind of pulp era setting, and who remembers them, frankly? Um, and they were good. Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes had some lovely ideas in it, um, because Mike Stackpole, basically. Uh, he, Justice Inc. had some really solid stuff going on, but the one that's lasted is, is Call of Cthulhu, which, incidentally, it's why do people play Call of Cthulhu the way they do? Because that's the way they've always played it. And just looking at the, <laughs> on, the, the online controversy okay. about why, you know, the switch is from six to seven. These are not major mechanical changes. They really are not. Um, 
But, you know, and there's, it's a very retro system. I mean, it's very close to the original one. It's, and it's still got the problems of that. It's an investigative game or a game with a lot of investigation. You fail your, your spot hidden role. You don't see the clue. And I was play testing this with um, a few mates, one, only one of whom had ever actually played Cthulhu before. And yeah, they kept missing clues because they were missing roles and they didn't realize they were missing clues. Um, and it wasn't a hard scenario, but it became hard simply because of the mechanics. Um, I'm getting off the point. I think the 1920s is an interesting setting. Certainly at the time Call of Cthulhu came out, there were no other games set there. And it's the Jazz Age, and you've got Prohibition, you've got the gangsters, you've got potentially the rise of Nazis. Um, and this, hold on, 1981, is that's pre-Indiana Jones, isn't it? Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. I think, was 82? Maybe yeah. that's yeah. I mean, uh, so there's possibly one could argue there was something in the air, um, but it's not. You know, uh, course- it says it's. It says that Raiders of the Lost Ark is eighty one. Eighty one. Wow. Okay. But a Call of June. Cthulhu character is not Indiana Jones. Um, yeah. You know, very far from it. So I'm not sure there's an overlap there. I don't know. Um, I think it's it actually feeds into what Greg was saying. I think it's enough removed from the present day, that even if it's scary, it's not too scary because it's in the past. It's, you know, well, when the game came out mm-hmm. 60 years ago, you know, it would something like would, that would have bothered my grandparents. You know, it's it's not, I'm not scared by this. Old people are scared Oh, by let this. me throw something else in there about, because this is something that I, an impulse I've noticed playing historical games is you want to get it right, right? You mm-hmm. don't want to, you know, it's like, oh, wait, did they have telephones in the countryside at that time in this place? Yeah, was was the room lit by gas or was it lit by electricity? Yeah. And when yeah. you have Shoggoths distracting your players, it takes all the pressure off you to get the minute details of historical fact correct. I mean, yep. even though uh, I mean, you, there is uh, an extensive history section uh, in, in the uh, Keeper's book uh, in seventh edition, and previous editions had a lot more, actually, including like what was it? forensic science, investigative and forensic science, mm-hmm. like in the nineteen twenties. I love that. You though. know, yeah, mm-hmm. no, uh, and which someone complained online that that was missing from seventh edition. You know, like, well, but I mean, yeah, you could just find that online now. Yeah, you could just find it online. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think that's you know there is this group, uh, the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, and they uh, spend a lot of time creating uh, props for uh, you know Call of Cthulhu games and just like, uh, and they really uh, you know making costumes and settings. They even made movies that are historically accurate to that time period, like a silent film mm-hmm. for the Call of Cthulhu, um, which and is stunningly so the, good. Oh yeah, yeah. There is this like appeal to recreate and reenact history from the 1920s. Um, and I, I've, I think that is another very important sense of why people play. Um, and I mean, I maybe it's just because Lovecraft stories, like because they are set in the twenties, that, that uh, has become so evocative that people want to recreate Lovecraft country uh, for their own mm-hmm. games and just stomp through Miskatonic university in the woods outside of Arkham and Dunwich and all of those other haunted places. Um, and uh, probably will be doing for generations to come. Like I, think uh it's sort of set uh now it's very interesting that like 
Call of Cthulhu does have a setting that is very more specific and more evocative than anything D&D has. Like there are, of course, D&D settings, but there's not like there's no Arkham equivalent to Arkham, Massachusetts uh, for D&D, right? Mm. Like or Miskatonic University. Um, Mm, I don't know. I mean, maybe there is, but I'm not deep enough into D&D to know. The fact that we can't think of it, I mean, I've played it up to you. Greyhawk, Sigil, The Forgotten Realms. Yeah, those are three things, not one thing. Like, you're mentioning... So now... It's not... Yeah, okay, we could could agree to disagree, but... We'll agree to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Our friendship Uh, matters more to me than being right in this matter, Ross. I think the greatest strength, though, is what they realized is they, they kept... Um, the focus on writing very high quality scenario. Like I mentioned, you know, I ran one called the space between um, and I ran uh, one set in the, you know, revolutionary France and there, there are multiple campaigns that are easy to adapt to your favorite system. What's the one like machine tractor station six, two, six or something. Machine tractor uh, station 37, um, which is, yeah. uh, One of the most nihilistic scenarios I've ever run. I've Uh, heard it's real good. Uh, do you I want just me to spoil the, the... cut? Yeah, it no, is set... no. I might okay. get in there sometime. It is set in the Soviet Union uh, in the 1930s at a remote uh, tractor station uh, in the middle of nowhere during winter, um, and the players are sent Shit. there to go check on them. They haven't message. They haven't been telegramming us back or radioing us. Like, go find out <laughs> what they're doing. <laughs> Um, uh, I so, want to read the novelization of Machine Tractor Station 37. Interestingly enough, Tractor Station uh, 37 um, is... Isn't there Kharkov in there somewhere, too? Yeah, yeah. It is Machine Tractor Station Kharkov 37. Um, it was actually done um, with the old edition of the Miskatonic uh, uh, Repository, a monograph, which meant it was someone, uh, Brett Kramer, wrote it. Um, who is now with Sentinel Press, uh, Sentinel Hill Press, I believe. And uh, it was a monograph released in 2004. Um, and I don't believe – so I think you can still download it now. No, it's currently unavailable. So wah, wah. Yeah, before uh, before uh, 7th edition, they had the monograph well, you know, program, which allowed anyone to publish things uh, that they submitted. We have not. Okay, so James, have you, are you familiar with Machine Tractor Station Kharkov? 37? 35, yeah, but not 37. Oh, damn it. Because I was going to suggest, oh, we haven't settled on what our actual play is going to be. And, you know, if, if Ross I mean, has I, that. I mean, no, I have the PDF. I have it. I've run it before. So, yeah, I could run it for uh, <laughs> us. Yeah. Cool. Um, that is the. Uh, uh, we, so, yeah. we might have to sing Song of the Volga Boatmen between, before uh, playing to get ourselves in the mood, but I'd do <laughs> yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, probably, yeah, we might put that up as one of the candidates. Maybe we have one last backer vote, uh, as a couple of candidates, but I, you know, I, I would be happy to run it again. Um, right. so, uh, they do have Just a, um, uh, like the DMs guild, there's an equivalent for chaosium, uh, on drive through RPG where people can submit their own fan material and, uh, sell it. Um, so, uh, but the monograph was like an early version of that, just done directly through Chaosium. Um, so yeah, there's 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 a vast amount of scenarios for it. Um, but I think if and I scenarios are financial heartbreakers, <laughs> but they're so yep. fun to read and write and run. Um, I yeah. mean, yeah. But James, am I wrong? Nope. 
No, you are completely right. You will not make money on them. <laughs> you will. They are. Yeah, you're. You're just going to chase that dragon. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a shame because, as you say, it's the fun stuff to to do. But uh, yeah, you might as well photocopy it yourself and fling those photocopies into a river. I think I think that's the thing that with Call of Cthulhu, the scenarios and the campaigns are the real highlight. Like the system is fine, but if you don't like it, there's uh, any number of Cthulhu game system inspired game systems out there that uh, may be better suited for you. You can make it more nihilistic with Delta Green. You can make it more um, better sol- suited for mystery solving with uh, Trail with of Trail. Cthulhu. You can yeah. go real rails like glider with uh, Cthulhu. What is it? Cthulhu, Cthulhu Dark. Dark. Yeah. yeah, that that has your that would have your favorite combat rules, Greg. Uh if you fight the monster, you die. Uh, <laughs> there, there's no there's that's it. That, that that's all the uh you have to run away. Um have so, fun walking into that jet engine, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Uh so yeah, it's it's um if you've never run it, if you've never read it, um I would definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, they, there's a free starter set or PDF um quick start guides uh, available. It's downloads and uh, yeah, all their all the books right now for seventh edition have been beautiful. Yeah, um, the, the box well starter set is is absolutely lovely. I think it's one of the aside from the D and D stuff, which has just been absolutely top notch. This is some of the best starter material I've seen for any yeah. game for a very long time. It's really mm-hmm. well put together. If you're looking for someone, if you know someone who's Cthulhu curious, uh, this would be a really <laughs> good way to introduce them not only to Lovecraft and his his mythos. Um, but how to how to have a lot of fun in it? Thank you so much for listening. Um, our yeah, next... this was a good one. This is yeah, this was clearly a... this is is where close to our hearts. It's, <laughs> I, I have to say, I respect Call of Cthulhu enormously as an incredibly important system. But as I've said in earlier episodes, I'm not a horror gamer myself. To me yeah, personally, I've only played it two or three times in in total. I've enjoyed those. Um, I've run it once, which was in preparation for this, and it was fine. But at the same time, it's just uh, for its place in the hobby. It's um, it's a fascinating read. See, that's that's why you're a good counterbalance to the gibbering, jonesing horror addicts, me and Ross. We're just over, yeah, horror, that's the stuff you got any on you, man. Shoot it right in my eyes. Mm obliterate my sense of this my 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 sense of meaning in the cosmos i'm into it so having having you to to counter that impulse is probably a good thing no my my pleasure um speaking of horror uh and also uh, uh fantasy why don't we uh this our next episode is going to be the perfect venn diagram intersection of both those morkborg uh which is a dark uh fantasy uh role playing game uh that has started sparked its own sort of movement uh, with mini games imitating its its style, its uh, rules, um, and it's uh, certainly turned more than a few heads. So I'm very interested to see. Uh, I uh, yeah, well, I haven't started it, well, doing the homework on it yet, but yeah. I will. Yeah, um, it's got a very unique aesthetic uh, that many um, people have sought to imitate since then, but no one, no one's quite really got it. Um, recently, they the the author of it uh, did post like. Uh, a screenshot of drive through RPG with like just a grid of our RPG titles, just their little thumbnails of the covers. And there's one right in the middle with a bright yellow and that's Morkborg. And see, that's why we made the cover yellow. Everything else, it stood out. So um, yeah, uh, 
Uh, but before we go, we would like to uh, thank uh, two of our backers. I would like to thank Pete Petrusha uh, of uh, Imagining Games. Uh, I know Pete. Uh, we've talked uh, multiple times. I met him at Gen Con. Uh, he published last year Chew, the RPG based on the uh, Dark Horse comic series. The same name. Uh, he's a cool guy. He does a lot of cool uh, stuff. So we'll put a link into Imagining Games um, and you can see what kind of games to do. Chew is really fun. It's powered by the apocalypse. You're detectives, but you all have a weird food based power. Um, like the main character in Chew, the comic, um, is uh, I forgot the, the name they use for it, but basically he eats. A uh, piece of food, he knows everything. Really, he eats something, he knows everything that's ever happened to that thing. So if he eats an apple, he sees it growing in the orchard. He does that. So of course, like he investigates crimes and says, so like, well, I'll just take a bite out of his toe. And like, okay, now <laughs> we can see what happened to him. Uh, so just a little bit of light cannibalism. Um, but it's a very weird and fun game. Okay, and I'll say a big thanks to James Matheson who. I all all that immediately comes to me is that he supported uh, <laughs> LND, and that's not nothing. That's a lot. Thank you, James. Uh, and again, thank you to all our backers of the Kickstarter. And all of, all of you are listening to this, whether you're on our private feed or on the public feed. Uh, thanks for listening. And don't forget, we have a community Discord. Jump in and talk about games and mm. all that fun stuff. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. 